Genesis 1 and young earth creationism. Is it the case that the only way that a Christian can understand Genesis 1 is by, according to a young earth creationist account of a literal 24-hour days? Well, we're going to talk about that as I continue my uh, response to Steve Schramm, a good friend of mine. Actually, I mean, he's a good friend. He's a really great guy. He's part of the mentionables with me. Uh, I love Steve. I love our discussions uh, so much. He's such a nice and cordial and friendly guy. He's definitely uh, out there to try to advance some really reasonable uh, dialogue. Actually, I found out from uh, this last episode, the part one that I put out, that Steve has somewhat altered his views based on some of my work on Genesis 1. He, he let me know that in a public comment. I'm not like outing him or anything. He didn't give me the details on that, so I don't know exactly what that looks like for him and what he would have changed. But he even said, you know what, I wouldn't even make some of the arguments that I had made uh, in that previous uh, response article to, to my work. So uh, I, I, I do want to put that out there. Um, Steve is uh, hugely uh, intellectually honest and willing to kind of go where the evidence and argumentation leads, which is fantastic. Uh, I am going to read uh, and go through the part two of this article as it is without any alterations because again i don't exactly know what steve has changed or what he wouldn't say in the future and what i think steve said is really really indicative of what common young earth creationists um who are a little bit more educated than kind of uh you know someone who, who really is just kind of reacting to these types of things um but but really what someone who is, is steeped in the literature like steve uh is um, a really, really common responses that I, I get from young earth creationists. So uh, at this point, uh, Steve's comments, I'm not going to fully attribute to Steve because um, apparently he has changed and modified some of them based on our, on our interactions. Um, so uh, let's keep this as this is actually now just common young earth uh, responses uh, and, and literal day age responses to um, the article that I had put out. Remember, this is uh, this was Steve's response to an article that I had put out dealing with 10 common objections or 10 common lines of argumentation from uh, young earth creationists and, and uh, literal day, uh, little 24 hour day advocates in their reading of Genesis 1. So the format of this is gonna be going through, I'm gonna say uh, what, the, what that actual argument from the young earth creator or position or statement of the young earth creationist is, uh, and then delve into a little bit about what my response was and Steve's response and then how I would answer now a little bit complicated, but so far I've gotten some really positive feedback. I think most of you are kind of following the format. So uh, we are now, this is part two, so we're now on to number five, um, which is the, the statement that from the young earth creationist that Moses bases the Sabbath as the seventh day in Exodus 20 on the seven literal day structure of Genesis 1. Okay, so in this section, I argued that because Moses was the author of the book of Genesis 1 and Exodus 20, or at least, and actually since that, my view has altered a little bit, at least if it's not Moses, it's someone in the Moses circle, 
filtered through a little bit of redactional activity, uh, but that they are within the same tradition and that Exodus 20 is basing itself self-consciously on Genesis 1. Uh, and that since the latter is directly dependent on the former, since Exodus 20 is directly dependent on Genesis 1, that whatever is meant in Genesis 1 would also be meant in Genesis or in Exodus 20, right? Okay, so that's that's the general position that I would lay out. To this, Steve gives a couple of objections. First, he argues that because Exodus 20 is expressly stated to be the immediate words of God, uh, the, the problem for Steve then is that it doesn't hash out why that's an objection. Right, so so he just comes and he says, "Well, well, Exodus twenty is is expressly the immediate words of God. This is God speaking to Moses. It's not, um, you know, a, a narration account, for example. It's a narration of God speaking, but it's but it's attributed as God's direct words to Moses. I don't know what the objection actually is for that, right? So so surely any conservative notion of inspiration, which I assume that Steve and I have in common." would have room that God is the supreme author of all of the words of Scripture, regardless of whether or not they're through human intermediaries or not. So the Moses argument could be expanded that whatever God meant to inspire in Genesis 1, surely he built on in Exodus 20 when he inspired it, as the statement of Exodus 20 directly states. So without much more spade work, I'm just not really sure how that point is really a salient objection. Um, Moving on. Second, he makes a similar argument as the one uh, above, but that in Deuteronomy 10, we find God may have not only spoken the words, but might have inscribed the second set of tablets himself after Moses broke the first set. Uh, remember, he, he gets frustrated and he comes back and he throws the tablets down, they break, and he has to go back and, and get a second set of tablets. Uh, that's a view that could be debated, uh, again, whether or not God directly inscribed the second set of tablets or dictated and Moses made it. Um, again, that, that, that can be debated about the second giving of the law in Exodus 34, 27. But again, Steve then makes this statement based on that. He says, quote, if we again operate on the standard assumption that God intends to communicate and the best interpretation is the one the authors and original readers could have easily understood and shared, it makes absolutely zero sense that these days can represent anything other than ordinary literal days, end quote. Okay, the problem is that such an inference is a complete non sequitur. Okay, so imagine that God personally and directly inscribed the second set of tablets. Right. So so God, uh, you know, maybe by creational fiat spoke these tablets into existence. I don't know. We're not, I, I don't actually hold that view. So however, they think that God directly makes these tablets rather than dictating to Moses who writes these tablets. So what? Right. What would that change about the meaning of the terms given in Exodus 20 uh, that states that it's the build that, that states that it's building directly on the meaning of Genesis 1? Uh, again, I, I'm just not sure what that does as an object. I don't know what that gets the young earth creationist. In fact, something that's telling about this is that when God gives the Ten Commandments again in Deuteronomy 5, right, in the second giving of the law, what is conspicuously missing is the mention of the seven days of creation, but rather it's the time of bondage in Egypt that is brought to the forefront. Right, so, so it's a reminder that they are to have a rest and it reminds them about where they didn't have a rest in Egypt. This makes great sense on, on my polemical view of Genesis 1 
being against the Egyptian cultic beliefs, right? So the second giving of the law and dealing with the Sabbath has doesn't mention the creation week as the reason for it, right? It reiterates uh, the, in the second giving this this time in Egypt uh, and, and their oppression uh, while they were there. Steve then attempts to go after my comment that we have strong biblical warrant to believe that the seventh day itself is not a solar day. He gives some arguments against this, right? He, his first is that because the usual maneuver by old earth creationists, and remember, I'm not an old earth creationist, is to argue that since there is no morning and evening or rest formula, which are used in the other six days, that the seventh day is thus not literal and that since it's not literal, it's not literally, the other six days must be not literal as well. The problem with this uh, as an objection to my position or my comments are just manifold. First, again, I'm not an old earth creationist. I don't make the, the, that, that kind of reverse engineering argument that he mentions that if the seventh day isn't literal, then the first days aren't either. Insofar as he objects to that, he's just chopping at a straw man since it's not my argument and not my view. That might work against other people's positions, but it, that's not my view, so it doesn't really work against mine. Second, the morning and evening and rest formula are, are features that young earth creationists use to directly argue that the days of Genesis are literal. So what's good for the goose, it's good for the gander. If those are the indicators of a literal day, that is, if the young earth creationist wants to say that the phrase, there was morning and there was evening, and to have these the, the rest formula, and God rested on, on such and such day, if those are the indicators that the young earth creationist wants to say, ha, ah, see, that proves it's a literal day, then their absence is evidence against the literalness of the seventh day because it's present in the first six and not present in the seventh. So it's not that we reverse engineer from the seventh backwards, but we say, if by your own standards, that's what indicates these are literal days, but it's absent on the seventh day, then by your own, sta by your own standard, you shouldn't think the seventh day is a literal day either. Right? If so, Steve wants to say that their, their absent doesn't point to a non-literal nature of the day, then he can't help himself that their evidence for the literal nature of days one through six. You see how that works? If he wants to say those aren't features that show something is a literal day, or, or, or the absence of them doesn't show it's not a literal day on, on day seven, then he can't help himself to the conclusion that because they're present, therefore it's a feature of the days one through six. Right? He, can't, he can't have it both ways. Um, second, uh, really next, Steve then says that the past tense action of God on day seven, he ended his work, he rested, right? Past tense completed action shows that God's completed his rest on day seven. Again, problems abound with that. So perfect tense actions are completed actions with ongoing results, right? It's a, it's, it's simply not the case that just because God rested on the seventh day, that he is not still resting from his acts of creation. We see this when we talk about how David took the throne in the past perfect past tense, right? Does it mean that he only ruled on the throne for that one day that he took the throne? Of course not. He started his rule, which has continued on long after that. This is just an abuse of grammar for Steve to try to make that point. It just doesn't work grammatically. 
He also says that to reinterpret this passage based on, or sorry, he says that quote, this is his quote, to reinterpret this passage based on the New Testament verse would seem to imply fallacious exegesis, end quote. Now notice the inconsistency. This is coming from someone who says that we should use statements of Jesus on creation in the New Testament to tell us how we should understand Genesis 1. Remember, that was, I think, either point 0.3 or point 0.4. But now notice he only wants to use the New Testament when it's convenient and, and potentially supports his view. Now, I agree that we should not use the New Testament in such a way that it will arrive at a meaning of an Old Testament text that's contrary to what the original meaning could have been or should have been. But surely the New Testament supplements and expands our understanding. I mean, that just is the formula, what hidden in the Old Testament, you know, or concealed in the Old, revealed in the New, right? The New Testament is our hermeneutical textbook for how we understand the Old Testament. That's just common hermeneutics. And, and, and Jesus seems to make that same argumentation in John 5, 17, which Steve conveniently doesn't address. So he then states, uh, Steve states, quote, further, as you'll see, if you read my article on the subject, accepting that day seven is continual ignores lots of scripture to the contrary and is certainly not what we know is the biblical view, end quote. Well, that's all fine and well to assert, but without any argument or evidence given, Steve will have to forgive his readers for not just taking his word on it. He then argues that just because the, the, the leave may be indefinite, right, just because the, the day may be indefinite, that does not entail that the day a, a leave starts is not, right? Now, that's a valid point. Like the David example, David's rule may have been continuous after the first day, but it was a, a on a first day that it started, right? Does that kind of make sense? So even though David's rule continued, it started on a one singular day, and that's fair enough. The problem with this for day seven is that the Lord's Sabbath rest and the seventh day are considered one and the same thing. In fact, this analogy is made precisely in the prior context of Exodus 20. This is clear in Hebrews 4 and John 5 as well. So the text does not just say that God started his rest, his leave on day seven, but, that's day, but rather that day seven is God's Sabbath rest. And since Jesus can talk about God still resting to this day, this would entail that day seven is continuing to this day. So in his zeal to make his point, Steve simply ignores the conceptual unification of the concepts of the seventh day as God's Sabbath rest. Now, Steve grants my argument about the Jubilee year, <clears throat> but misses the import that it's an example of the sevenfold, or rather a six plus one paradigm, that we find in the calendric thinking of ancient Near Eastern Israelites, such that the paradigm is the basis for their entire calendar. I mean, their whole calendar, their work week, their Sabbath years, their Jubilee years, and so on. They use this sevenfold, or six plus one paradigm, throughout all of their, their calendar uh, calendarization of their life. So it's far more probable that the paradigm is the controlling feature and not the literal 24-hour nature of days. Okay, also, here, I should remind Steve and, and my listeners here that I think it's highly probable that a seven-day work week 
is the analog that Moses wanted to use in Genesis 1. Remember, I think that is the device that he chose to build his narrative around. The question is, if those days and the whole narrative of Genesis 1 are meant to be taken as literal, historical, concordistic, diachronic telling of material origins, I think it's just clearly not. So the longer Steve barks up the old earth creationist tree trying to treat my view as if it's the same as theirs, the longer I'm just going to sip my coffee from my porch and wonder how long it will take him to actually come and talk to directly to me in my front yard. Steve then moves on to Psalm 90. And my argument that in this parallel creation psalm of Moses, we have a clear example of Moses' own fluid concept of time with respect to God and creation and how he uses a thousand years, a day, and a watch of the night as interchangeable concepts. Steve incorrectly assumes that I think this means that we can treat the term yom like a wax nose to mean whatever we want it to mean. This is simply not my argument. Once again, Steve needs to stop and read my comments more unbiasedly and refrain from imposing old earth creationist assumptions onto my view because I'm not an old earth creationist. Nowhere do I argue that this means yom can mean whatever we want it to mean. Instead, I'm merely showing that Moses can clearly use the exact same terms found in Genesis 1 and Psalm 90 both in the context of the creation event, in an analogical way. That's it. It simply means that the young earth creationists cannot come to Genesis 1 and say that they must or necessarily have to mean a 24-hour solar day. That is not, quote, fallacious reasoning and hermeneutics, end quote, as Steve accuses me of. It's just clear and demonstrable fact. In fact, it is telling that rather than deal with this head-on, Steve is willing to scrap Mosaic authorship of Psalm 90 and give ground to the critical scholars who place Psalm 90 in post-exilic writing. Now, hope that window will fit this baby and the bathwater that he's trying to throw it all out of. Okay, number six. This is the number six argument uh, or, or statement that comes about from Young Earth Creationists. That Yom plus morning and evening in the Hebrew always refers to a literal solar day. That's the claim that they make. Here, Steve says that this is a straw man and that this is not the young earth creationist argument. At that point, I just simply beg to differ. I've been given this argument thousands of times, probably literally thousands of times. I don't think I'm being hyperbolic here. Since the publication of his first article, where he protested to the representation of many young earth creationists being dogmatic and hostile and anathematizing anyone who disagrees with them, I have tagged him in several threads that demonstrate that this is very common, even among young earth creationist popularizers. This too is an example where Steve just seems woefully ignorant of his own tradition and the rhetoric that comes out of it. This argument that the grammatical construction, yom plus morning and evening in the Hebrew, always refers to a 24-hour day is just ubiquitous among the debates with young earth creationists and in their literature. Also, please remember that what I stated above. I'm fine with saying that the conceptual tools, the conceptual hooks used by Moses just was a work week. 
So I'm not some old earth creationist trying to read Yom as some symbolic stand-in for a long indefinite period of time. I'm simply against bad arguments being used to get literal solar days in a concordist sense. In fact, he tries to prove this by appealing to Mortensen at Answers in Genesis, who wrote, quote, Everywhere else in the Old Testament, when the Hebrew word for day, yom, appears with evening or, or morning or is modified by a number, six day or five days, it always means a 24-hour day, end quote. So Steve, you know, notice, okay, I'm not sure what Steve is reading, right? Notice that the argument that Mortensen gives is exactly that everywhere that yom plus morning and evening is used or is modified by a number, which we'll get to in the next section, that it always means an ordinary day, right? Steve, in trying to say that I'm giving a straw man, cite someone who gives the exact argument I said that they do that he says that he's not aware that they give, right? So now Steve makes a big deal that Mortensen says, or instead of and, which is fair, though I have heard him use the other conjunction in that quote, he, but just in that singular quote, he doesn't. But I've heard Mortensen give that exact same argument, but it's irrelevant. The construction of Genesis 1 is not found elsewhere in the Old Testament. It's just not. It's like a grammatical hapax legomena, a, a, a one-of-a-kind grammatical construction. So therefore, it cannot be used to adjudicate the argument, right? We can't say that, that yom plus morning and evening always means this thing if the only place that we find it is in Genesis 1. Right? You see, you see the problem there? You can't say it always means this, therefore it means that in Genesis 1, if the only place we find it is in Genesis 1. Okay, in fact, what Steve and Mortensen miss is that the meaning of the time frame in the context of yom plus morning or yom plus evening is actually in all of the instances, right? So, so it's a hapax legomena where it's yom plus morning and evening. That only exists in Genesis. But there are places where it's yom plus morning or yom plus evening. Those time frames are actually not determined in those contexts by the conjunction of those two terms, yom plus morning or yom plus evening. That's not what determines the time frame. It's determined by the genre and the narrative in which the terms are found or by temporal prepositions within the text, such as someone rising in the morning or the priest offering the morning sacrifice, right? What most people don't understand about the Hebrew or Greek for that matter is that time is more often than not determined by context and prepositions or particles and not by the verb tense itself or the use of lexi lexically fluid terms like yom. In fact, we have clear counterexamples to Mortensen's claims, such as Isaiah 17.11, Daniel 8.14, Daniel 8.28, etc. Once again, the young earth creationists are being led around by the nose by non-experts making hard and fast and false rules of Hebrew grammar and lexicography. That's just not how the grammar works in the Hebrew. Right? Steve then cites someone from uh, the, the ICR. I don't remember exactly. Institute for Creation Research, I think. Uh, ironically saying exactly what he called a straw man. Quote, 
The meaning of the term day must be seen in conjunction with the meaning of evening and morning. So then it would appear that when the words morning and evening are used in the same verse, they must refer to a normal day, end quote. So not only is it not a straw man that I was responding to, but my response to it in my previous article here show that that type of argument is just demonstrably false. Okay, next, number seven, and we touched on this previously, but here's the response to it. The, the, the seventh thing that young earth creationists will typically say is that, or, or advocates of a literal day will typically say is that yom plus an ordinal or a cardinal number, right? An ordinal number is like first, second, third, fourth, a cardinal number, one, two, three, four. Uh, in the Hebrew, always refer to a literal solar day. Okay, here, and, and in, in, in the previous article, uh, I showed that that simply is not the case. I gave numerous biblical examples where yom plus an ordinal doesn't mean a literal 24-hour day, and it, numerous examples where yom plus a cardinal doesn't mean 24-hour literal day. So here Steve wants to try and divide between cardinal and ordinal numbers. He wants to grant my point about cardinal numbers, but not ordinal numbers. Now, there are numerous problems with this, not the least of which is that the first day in Genesis 1 is a cardinal number, right? Um, it, it, it's actually, it's, it's days 2 through 6 that are ordinal, okay? So th that is, in Genesis, day 1 is a cardinal number. Right. So when in the Hebrew, actually, when you're reading through, it's there was morning, and there was evening day one days, two through six. When you're reading the Hebrew, it's there was morning and there was evening the second day, the third day and so on and so forth. This is why both have to be addressed. Steve cannot merely pick and choose what grammar and terms of which fit for his argument and which don't. So imagine he says, well, that's the case with cardinal numbers, but not with ordinal numbers. Okay, does that mean day one isn't a literal day, but days two through six are, but then the seventh day isn't again? He has to really break up and really do kind of violence to the text in order to make that, that kind of ad hoc, um, um, really arbitrary distinction. So um, Steve cannot merely pick and choose what grammar and terms of which fit his argument and which one don't. Such an obvious partial selection makes any argument he makes hopelessly ad hoc. And once again, keep in mind that I'm not an old earth creationist trying to read Yom symbolically as millions or billions of years. I'm fine with an analogical work week. We just shouldn't make bad arguments. He then wants to protest my counterexample of Yom plus an ordinal number outside of Genesis 1. He claims that this is the only counterexample, which is irrelevant because it's a rare construction, so finding one exception is statistically important and cannot be ignored to drive the invention of a hard and fast young earth creationist rule. But he also wants to say that my treatment of the exception is incorrect simply because the term is in the plural. This hardly gets what he is looking for since the young earth creationist is attempting to make a hard and fast grammatical use of the, of the terms. Notice how to handle objections, they must continue to alter and amalgamate their rules. Ad hocness begets more ad hocness. However, even if he's correct here, which I don't think he is, he grants me that yom plus an ordinal in Hebrew in Hosea 6.2 and that, 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 that yom plus an ordinal is not literal. 
So once again, this would simply invalidate the rule that the young earth uh, creationists are attempting to prop up that yom plus an ordinal has to mean a literal 24-hour day. He grants that's not the case in Hosea 6.2. At this point, the rest of Steve's comments just become irrelevant. He should agree that the rule fails and move on and then try to give some type of contextual or exegetical reason for why we should think that's the best reading of it in Genesis 1. But he goes off on somewhat of a tangent about William Lane Craig, so which I don't really want to follow into the work on William Lane Craig. So I'll leave that to his readers uh, to divine his purpose for that somewhat tangential statements about William Lane Craig. Okay, the eighth statement uh, from Young Earth Creationists, uh, th this is the final one, eighth and final, is that we see the use of the Vav consecutive construction in the Hebrew, which is how Hebrew marks out historical narrative, and thus we should take Genesis 1 as literal history. If, if you look back at my original argument, I show countless times. There's this there's this Hebrew thing called the Vav consecutive. That is, Vav followed by an imperfect verb is an indication of narrative in the Hebrew text, which is true enough. It's the indication of narration, right? But I showed it happens in narrative poems. I showed it happens in narrative epic. I showed it happens in, in, in the allegory uh, that Jotham gives in Judges, uh, where he gives this allegory of the bramble bush and the different types of trees. And he uses the Vav consecutive to move that narrative along. But it's an allegory. It's not a historical narrative. So the Vav consecutive moves along narration. It does not prove something is a literal historical reportage or historical narrative, right? So once again, Steve tries to say I'm misrepresenting the argument, but once again, he's wrong. This is his favorite, this is a favorite argument of many young earth creationists uh, in, in the young earth creationist camp, like Jonathan Sarfati, who has used it over and over and over and over and over and over again in my run-ins with him. In fact, in one article that he writes, I think it's for Creation Research Institute or for uh, Answers in Genesis, I don't remember which one, but he writes this article, I think it's titled something like, Is Genesis Poetry uh, a Figurative, a Theological Argument Against Polemic? Or something, something along those lines. Uh, I don't have it right in front of me. Um, he, Sarfati writes, quote, Genesis is peppered with and, 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 which characterizes historical writing. This is technically called the Vav, often rendered as the Vav consecutive, end quote. Okay, so what Sarfati is saying, Whenever you read in English, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and it's driving the narrative forward, the and is the vav constructed with an imperfect verb, and he did such and such, or and such and such happened, or and so on and so forth. Sarfati is making this argument that the and the and construction, the vav consecutive, is indicative, it is the characteristic of historical writing, historical narrative, right? Sarfati is not a small person in young earth creationist circles. Sarfati is a big fish in that pond, okay? So I'm, I'm hardly strawmanning anything. And this kind of response is becoming a, a little bit of a trend for Steve. And it's, again, he, he already said that he wouldn't necessarily make all these same arguments, but this is super common among young earth creationists. Uh, it's starting, it, it comes across as kind of like a, I don't think I argue like that, so no one must argue like that. So yet again, I simply would ask Steve or anyone who uh, in the Young Earth camp who would give arguments like this to just 
open their eyes to their own camp's arguments. And in nearly every case I've shown that what Steve calls a straw man is somehow ends up endorsing the exact argument which makes his protestation doubly problematic for him. Now, here Steve appeals to Dr. Boyd's highly problematic study uh, of uh, preterites in the Hebrew text. Okay, this hardly demonstrates much for this point especially since I'm not arguing that the Vav consecutive construction is not part of historical narrative, right? So only that the young earth, can, cannot, young earth creationist and the person who's advocating for a literal 24-hour day cannot say that Genesis 1 must be historical narrative because they think the Vav consecutive just is a marker for historical narrative, right? Do you see how that works? So uh, so Dr. Boyd's argument about preterites is is um, uh, is that everywhere everywhere that we have historical narrative, we have this vav consecutive construction. Fine, all well and done. The problem is you can't move from that to saying it's it's really an affirming the consequent fallacy. You can't therefore say that everywhere we see the vav consecutive, therefore we have historical reportage. Right? That'd be like saying everywhere we have a dog, we have a mammal. So therefore, everywhere we have a mammal, we have a dog. Right? I showed over and over and over again that the Vav consecutive is not exclusive to historical narrative, to diachronic historical narrative. It, it, it is a marker of all narrative. Right? It could be allegorical narrative. It could be poetic narrative. It could be an epic narrative. It could be apocalyptic narrative. The Vav consecutive just shows a narration of events going. That's it, right? So the, the young earth creationists can't go and say, well, because we have the Vav consecutive, therefore that's evidence that we have historical reportage. That's just not how the Vav consecutive operates in Hebrew. Um, Steve seems to overall concede this point, so we don't need to waste much ink here. Okay, conclusions. So I appreciate the cordial tone of Steve's response, even if we are both uh, firm in some of our statements and disagree with each other. He does attempt to backhandedly blunt uh, me in with people who do not understand young earth creationist arguments. I'm assuming because all of his appeals to, to me straw manning. But in most cases, I've shown that he doesn't really seem aware of his own movement and some of the arguments, even among the most famous popularizers like Ham, Lyle, Sarfati, Mortensen, and others. So while I echo his tone of fellowship in the ministry of the gospel, I'd like to challenge him and other young earth creationists to continue to consider the arguments for and against the views that are contrary to their own. I think often he imputed old earth creationists or concordist assumptions onto my statements that I simply don't hold or affirm, and neither do a lot of Old Testament scholars. It, it's a hard thing for young earth creationists to understand non-concordist views since they're so fundamentally different, right? It's hard for a concordist to think in non-concordist terms. I understand that. It makes it challenging. I would just challenge him and, again, those who hold views like his to use those kidneys and bowels to think hard on these issues, right? Remember, the Old Testament says that we, we think with, with our kidneys and God placed his law on our bowels, right? It's a concordist view that would say that we have to get our anatomical understanding from the Old Testament. 
but they don't there. A non-concordist says, hey, we understand that these are the thought forms of, of, of those people in those days. We're not trying to derive uh, you know, literal material historical information from those types of statements. We understand that God is just incarnationally inhabiting those cultures, and that's fine. We get the import of what's trying to be said. All right, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, please feel free to put them in the comments below this video if you're watching YouTube. If you're listening to this via the podcast, please feel free uh, to visit the blog at freethinkerpodcast.blogspot.com or head on over to the Free to Thinker group page on Facebook. As always, we would love your subscriptions. Uh, if you would like to, again, on the YouTube, subscribe, hit the subscribe button below, uh, share it around. We'd love to get to 1,000 subscribers. Uh, we're somewhere in the mid-200s, uh, and, and we're growing slowly but steadily. But please, uh, like, subscribe, and share. Thank you all. Good night, and God bless.